show that never ends. I'm glad you could attend. Come inside. Come inside. Come inside. Right now. You are listening to Let's Talk Hemp and the 422. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Let's Talk Hemp in the 422. I am your co-host, Morris Beagle, here with my brother in hemp spirit, Rick Trojan. This is episode five of season three, and we're still somewhat in quasi-lockdown, but now I guess it's just safer at home and we haven't got past that. Is that correct? Yeah, buddy. I am uh, I'm speaking to you from the balcony of my family cabin. You've actually been here outside of Steamboat. We are safe at home and we are shelter at home here in Colorado. So you can go out and you can wear the masks and you can, you know, be cognizant of uh, your social distancing and you can um, go out to restaurants for takeaway only, but then no dine-in, no sit-in. Right. So I think we were, you were in Steamboat a couple of episodes ago when you sat on the, you sat on the heater and burnt your ass. True. That's true. So this time there's no need for a heater because it's a nice day and actually the heaters are off. So yeah, there will be no torching this evening. But uh, yeah, but the mask thing, so up here in Route County, the masks are required to go out. So we didn't have masks required in February and March, but I think they started requiring them end of April and now May. So the masks are out there and we have all sorts of people. It's now become a political issue with wearing the mask, which is totally amazing to me. But you have an amazing perspective on masks, buddy. And it totally, as we were chatting, I think was a great perspective. So tell us what your mask protocol is. I don't know if it's necessarily a protocol as much as it is a philosophy, but we can call it either one. I guess it really doesn't matter. So, yeah, we all have to wear masks now. You can't go to a store without having to wear a mask. It seems to be pretty much mandatory these days. So I did did just get a mask recently from the Hemp Black folks, which are part of Ecofiber and the Ananda Hemp Group, which uh, you remember Phil Warner? He's the one who started that. Phil from Australia? Yeah, we met him in Nepal. Right. So they've got their own proprietary blend of things in this mask. And there's some hemp in there. I don't know how much hemp is in there. But, you know, here's a hemp company that's putting out a mask. And they're not making any medical claims that this is FDA approved. And as we know, 95% of what people are wearing out there isn't FDA approved and not medically safe. It's cotton mask and paper mask and handkerchiefs and bandanas and so forth. So it's really become kind of a fashion situation. It makes people feel safer if somebody's got something wrapped around their face. And whether it's effective or not, you got to wrap something around your face. So I'm kind of of the opinion now that it's it's more of a fashion statement. So I went online and ordered myself a nice Black Sabbath mask. I got myself a Willie Nelson one. I got myself a Grateful Dude one from the Dudeism site. I think I'm just going on full-on fashion mask from here on out. I like it. I like it. you took a potential, right, positive or negative, but a, a, a potential something you, that is now something required to do, and you made it fun and, and exciting and fashionable. So I think that's fantastic. My problem right. with the masks, though, bro, is, is I can only hear in one ear, and so when the mask is on people's face, I can't understand what they're saying and who they're talking about or anything that's going on because when they talk, it just I can't read their lips and I can't understand through the muffleness of the mask. 
Right. And I don't think the mask is going to do anything. And so unless somebody is coughing and sneezing, but if people are just breathing, then you're not going to catch anything anyway if, with normal breathing. And I can tell you from when I've been out at stores, I've yet to be around anybody in my vicinity that has coughed or sneezed. And I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I try to stay as far away from people as possible, keeping my own space and make sure everybody else is comfortable. I'm going to do my part as a team player for, for USA. I appreciate that, and America appreciates that. And uh, one thing I think is interesting, though, that did come up recently is a friend has a med spa that do, like, facial treatments and applications of the face, like laser treatment and such. She's not allowed to be open, but dentist's office, where you go into the actual mouth, right, where you can't wear face masks, are allowed to be open. I think that's interesting. That is interesting. I'm actually yeah. going in to get a haircut tomorrow. It's my first haircut in a couple of months. Nice. I have to wear a mask. You have to wear a mask to your haircut? Yeah. I think you got to wear a mask pretty much everywhere now. If I was going to bet, I bet you'd go probably Sabbath tomorrow for the haircut, just because it's possible. Oh, yeah, I actually haven't got the Sabbath mask. I just ordered them over the weekend. They should all be in this week, so I'll just wear my hemp black mask tomorrow. Very nice. Yes, well, so we have a great episode coming up. We have the amazing, uh, incredible, and longtime hempster, Chris Boucher who is going to get into some stories about how this industry was really founded, like what happened in the beginning of everything. Yep. Starting from the early 90s with folks getting together and creating the first organization and what became the Hemp Industries Association. So why don't we get into talking with Chris and find out the history of the Hemp Industries Association. Guitars made from hemp. Guitar cabinets made from hemp. Amplifiers made from hemp. Speaker cones made from hemp. Guitar straps made from hemp. Are you ready to take your entire guitar rig to 11? Check out SilverMountainHemp.com and prepare yourself for the sound of the future. SilverMountainHemp.com Welcome back to Let's Talk Hemp in the 422 Season 3, Episode 5, with today's guest, longtime hemp advocate, industry leader, pioneer, and CEO of Farmtiva Inc. in sunny California, Mr. Chris Boucher. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Just excited to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, Chris, thanks for coming on, man. It was so great to catch up, and I want to go over something that I think our audience will find exciting and enticing. Kind of the start of the Hemp Industry Association, really the resurgence of the hemp industry back in the early 90s, and an article by Mary Kane, K-A-N-E, and it was an article in 1993 in the International Hemp Journal, Dueling Labels, the Hemp Certification Debate. And so this was an article that covered kind of the formation of the early hemp industry together and around textiles. But as you say, it was been, and you shared this article with us, thank you very much, because you saved it and shared it, but this has been actually scrubbed from the web, and I was unable to find it as well. When did that happen? Why do you think that happened? What's, what's the background behind that? Why would they take this off the web? You know, I think it was pre-internet, and it wasn't digitized at one point. And, uh, you know, 93, 94, there just really wasn't any web action out there. And, and so it was all in magazine print. It was actually Hemp World, which was a magazine that Mary Kane did uh, and I think she did about 10 issues, and then it eventually 
fell under the International Hemp Journal, I believe, but uh, that was one of the first articles she wrote, or, or one of the first magazines that she came out with. Give us a little background on kind of what this article, the dueling label debate, kind of give us, this is what, 92, 93, kind of give us an overview of what this debate was and what the industry was like back then. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it really the backstory was just really back in 91, 90, 91, 92, where we were importing textiles, hemp textiles out of China, and a lot of the textiles were not 100% hemp or the blends weren't what they were saying. And so we were testing the fabric. They weren't testing the way they were being labeled from the Chinese. So we were concerned that we just didn't want to see a whole plethora of hemp products coming into the market that weren't made out of hemp. They were made out of flax or they were mixed with cotton. So we, we had our traditional 100% hemp canvases, then we had our 60-40 blends, you know, hemp cotton, hemp flax, hemp silk. And at the time, it was the uh, ATM, which was a textile testing program that was industry standard in just the textile industry. So we would take our fabrics and get them tested, and they weren't coming back 100% or what they were labeled, like I said. So we saw a concern, and that's when we decided to put together a group of there were about maybe four or five of us uh, originally. It was actually Christy from Coalition for Hemp Awareness, and she was Christy Bowling, and her and Patrick Wang were out of Chandler, Arizona, and they had their company, and she kind of was the conduit of, you know, getting everybody together, come out of Arizona, let's have a meeting, and let's put together some kind of representation of the hemp industry, because at that time, there was no representation. It was just a few individual companies making hemp or importing it. And so that was the main focus of really having a certified, you know, real hemp fabric that uh, would actually help the industry in itself. So there was no knockoffs or fabrics that uh, weren't what they said they were. So that's kind of where that was bred out of. And then so by 92, 93, we were meeting, you know, every other month, you know, on the phone and uh, also in Arizona and just kind of trying to hammer out uh, how this would work. And we kind of formatted it on the winning council and how they do it in the cotton council. And, you know, there should be a hemp council. And that, that was our basic thought process. Sorry, but that original gang of five right in the 90s was was Hawaiian Hemp Company, House of Hemp, the Hemp Seed Company, your company, Ohio Hempery, and then the Coalition for Hemp Awareness. Yeah, there's also, I think, Denny from Arizona. There was one or two other companies that were involved, but since we all came together at the first time, there was a group of real, like we were real companies creating revenue and selling fabric throughout the United States. So uh, it was a little intimidating at first because people, there was no standard, there was no associations, there was no nothing. It was just freewheeling hemp stuff out there. So, you know, we decided, hey, let's pull this all together and create some kind of label, create some type of association that people could go to. And, you know, it was for networking and marketing and, you know, testing. And, you know, really, that was uh, our uh, initial thought process. Was Ecolution involved in that or was that pre-Ecolution? It was pre-Ecolution. This was... uh, like I said, the original companies, one of the original importers was House of Hemp, a guy, Steve Orgel. He was up in Portland, Oregon. He was like one of the main guys that was bringing the fabric in. And I think Barbara might have been bringing some fabric in at the time. But that was kind of where we all decided, not only as a group for an association and textiles, but uh, we would pool our money together and, and act as a co-op 
and some companies would purchase more than others, but we would share in the actual price from the Chinese. So if somebody got you know 10,000 yards of fabric and another person got 50,000, we pretty much all paid the same price. And what we did was we took about 3% of the gross sale, or whether it's a half a million dollar container or a quarter million dollar container, and we would uh, take 3% of that and put it into our association. That way we could fund the association and uh, be able to uh, have the meetings and fly in and all meet at the same time. And that was kind of our way to fund it originally. And when you were bringing in all this fabric, was it just raw fabric and you guys were doing all cut and sew here in the United States or were you bringing in any finished goods from China? At the time, no, just mainly just textiles, fabrics, no finished goods. We were literally finishing everything here. We were getting raw goods in the beginning and it needed to be converted. And conversion in textiles is just, you know, washing, stretching, reframing, dyeing. So we had to do all that before we even put it into a product because the raw material that we were getting hadn't been basically converted over for production use. You know, you have to get your shrinkages down and especially if you're making clothing and other items, and you know, you don't want to use a raw fabric and it shrinks 50%. (laughs) So uh, there was a lot of learning in the beginning. And, uh, you know, like I said, we were mainly concerned because we were paying, we were at the time we were paying probably maybe three fifty to $4 and 50 cents a yard for like a 12 ounce canvas. Which wow. today goes for probably what twelve to fifteen dollars, and uh, when we would test it, we would find out that maybe it was ninety percent hemp, and the Chinese were filling like ten percent of it with cotton, and you couldn't tell with the human eye. But you know, once we went to the testing companies, we were able to get a, a valid uh, test on it. We wanted to have the validity of the textiles, so we could introduce it to the Levi's, the Lee jeans. Uh, you know, just the big giant companies, we thought that, uh, you know, we wanted to get them on board also, and it would be, you know, a lot bigger than all of us. So that that was kind of the thought process also in the original startup with the True Hemp uh, Industry Alliance. Chris, look, what Mary's uh, article says, she says, like any revolution, the hemp movement is fraught with divisiveness and factionalism. Business leaders are jockeying for position to mold the industry, and when disagreements arise, tempers flare. Underlying the issues are greed, paranoia, and egocentricism. So essentially, there were two, two dueling labels, if you will, right? The Institute for Hemp label and then the True Hemp certification label, which you just mentioned. What kind of help us understand back then what the situation was, why there were two, and how that developed? Yeah, so the IFH Institute for Hemp, you know, John, he's a good guy. He just basically was working out of his house, and he had this, you know, uh, his own personal. I don't think there was any members and it was more of um, a startup for him. And uh, with with the True Hemp Industry Alliance that we put together, we were active revenue generating companies. We had businesses, we had products. And uh, that was kind of the difference where we had a coalition of industry people and uh, he was really solo. And that's kind of where one of the issues was we were, you know, we wanted him to come on board with us also because you know, we did represent the majority of the industry at the time. And we also had a, a difference in um, the leaf or, the, or not the leaf. The big debate was, do you put a pot leaf on the hemp or do you put something else on it? And at the time, 
the stigma of the hemp leaf was really not good. So the last thing we wanted to do was scare away, you know, these big giant textile companies or big clothing companies by a pot leaf on it. It just didn't, it didn't work back then. So there was definitely a huge debate with that insignia of a leaf or not a leaf or something that was very subliminal or just wasn't in your face, you know, and, and, and we were from the faction that, uh, hemp textiles and fabrics don't come from the leaf they come from the stock and the leaf is medicine it, you know that's where you get your medicine and your medicinal use out of it so that was uh, our theory on it and the debate raged even to, into 94 95 and you know um even in and and the, in, in the uh, invitation that went out to everybody in 94 you know there was definitely the leaf faction and the non-leaf faction <laughs> so uh that that did exist but from a business point of view, it just made sense not to use the leaf if you wanted to mass market this to middle America and, you know, throughout the whole country. Well, it's interesting you say, because John Berenbach, right, in, the, in this article says specifically to this issue, he says, if you're ashamed of the cannabis leaf, then you shouldn't be involved in the industry. That falls back to misinformation campaign of the last 50 years, and they're falling into that trap, is the quote he has in this article. But that that same debate happens now, right, with with organizations now, do you put the leaf up? Do you not? There's a lot of stigma that comes with it. To your point, if it's not made from the leaf, why are you going to highlight the leaf, right? So that was an issue 50 years ago. It's still an issue, you know, now. We didn't really care if people put the leaf on their, you know, finished product, whether they're shirt or their hat or their logo that was that was up to them it was just for the actual industry association for the certification that way you know other companies that would buy it that were large-scale textile people you know they wouldn't have any issue on it it was it was a, definitely a business decision for you know hemp to assimilate into american textile and clothing you know that way there was no uh, pushback from these larger companies that we wanted to gain revenue from and, and create the industry outside of us, like I said, are just bigger than all of us at the time. And, you know, he has a good point there, but at the same time, the logic behind it was, uh, you know, textiles come from the fiber and the yarn and, you know, not the leaf. So it was that main issue at the time. <laughs> and it still is, I think, today. People are still debating that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, you guys were working with the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, weren't you at the time? Yes. Yeah, so we had uh, Owen Circus, Professor Owen Circus, who was the actual head of textiles. He was the main guy at the Institute there. And he basically uh, really schooled all of us, you know, in terms of educating us on what textiles are and how to represent it into the textile industry without inflaming, you know, other people's you know opinions on, on the leaf and so forth. Well, they were doing something in Oregon back then with Bernbach was saying that they can do paper from hemp was coming in and an Oregon company was making particle board, much like hemp traders today is making particle board that Morris uses in the in the cabinets. Yeah, oh yeah. People were pressing the herds and uh, making board. I mean, there was definitely cereal out there. There was some hempcrete being made. Um, and you got to understand the hempcrete came out of France, the Isa Chambre. And that was a big thing that, you know, Jack brought into the whole picture. And so, uh, you know, at the time, there was just there was no industry to even present it into the uh, construction materials. And, and even the paper seemed it was more of like a novelty. It still is today. And uh, I know there was a couple companies. I think Paul Stanford had a hemp paper company. And 
everyone wanted to get into Kinko's and, you know, hemp paper would, you know, save the forest, you know. I mean, and at the time, you got to realize that it was the beginning of clear cutting. The whole Humboldt Lumber Company started clear cutting the headwaters. And uh, we were all working in other alternative groups like Earth First, Rainforest Action Network. There was a lot of environmental action groups out there that were actually doing environmental actions that you don't see today. So there was a big uh, push to, uh, you know, incorporate the uh, hemp into paper just for deforestation. And so that, that had a lot of influence on it. Well, there actually is some paper movement starting to happen now. Georgia Pacific just announced a partnership with a company in Canada for toilet paper and soft tissue. And Mohawk has done a a deal. They're working with Ed Lairberger and I think Nina and paper there. There's a, there's some of the big guys are starting to dip their toes in it. What company? What Georgia Pacific? Yeah. There was a article that just came out in hemp industry daily. And I'd heard that that was in the works. I know Ed had talked to those guys like a, a year ago and they'd been scouting around and they did sign a partnership with a fiber company out of Canada and, and they're moving forward. So there's promise there, even though Georgia Pacific's owned by the, the Koch brothers, whatever. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, yeah, just the whole paper phenomenon was just, it was big and it just was trying to get the cost effectiveness and the cost really as a commodity, you know, whether it would be able to compete. There was a, a lot more to it. And uh, I mean, we could probably discuss that another day, but uh, we, yeah. we definitely had some great conversations. Um, God, I even had, I uh, was with Larry Flint. We we're on his jet one time with Woody Harrelson and Larry said to us, I'm really interested in this paper. He wanted to meet me. And he said, uh, bottom line was, he says, you know, I own like 50, 60 magazines. And he said, I don't really make much money on the magazines. I make money on the paper I sell to my magazines. He goes, I own a paper company. And guys like that were real interested in the paper. And uh, the problem was, you know, you have to bring the price down to where it's competitive. And at the time, we're like, yeah, paper's going up. And people are like, no, it's going down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you start looking at wood chips and $50 a ton for wood chips, how can you compete with that on a level? But Again, it, it goes a lot deeper. You know, wood paper is all subsidized. So, you know, how do you compete with something that's subsidized? Right. Exactly. And it's interesting, we're having the same debate now, but we're having it about with the Environmental Protection Agency about wood chips as a carbon neutral, renewable energy source, right, versus agricultural crops, right? So they're saying agricultural crops are pollutants versus wood chips potentially could be deemed de minimis, which means part of the bioeconomy. So, Timber farms could be part of the bioeconomy, whereas hemp could be excluded from that. It's the same argument. You know, the parallels are pretty, pretty interesting between what happened 30 years ago and what's happening now. Back then with the Linen Council and the Cotton and Cotton Inc. and some of those other big groups. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, we really were using them as an example. We wanted to see hemp like Cotton Inc. We wanted to see hemp like the Linen Council. And so we used those as models. Because, like I said, you know, this thing was bigger than all of us, and we're like, hemp's going to take over the world, <laughs> you know. So let, let, let's just kickstart this huge industry, you know, the milk industry, the cotton industry. All these industries have certification, and that's how they, one, make money, and that's how they keep the industry 
having certification of their products that meets the standards that way there's quality behind it and uh, a lot of other things but yeah that was really kind of our um, model that we wanted to kind of incorporate into the true hemp industry alliance and the true and then we had the offshoot which was the true hemp certification council which was an offshoot it was part of the true hemp industry alliance where you're seeing that now with the hia you've got the hemp authority yeah hemp authority yeah so i mean it's a little different but um this this way everyone would get a stamp would be on everyone's fabric they could put it in their label and uh, it would just really uh just show that this was quality and it was really hemp not something else because as you know you know people come in and they just kind of change the fiber and call it hemp you know it could be cotton it could be flax and and most people don't know the average consumer so this was really to protect the consumer also you brought up the hia hemp industries association so why don't we move into that and discuss the actual founding of it and then really who coordinated that conference back in 1994 when the hia was named how did it all begin in the article you can read um you know we had an april meeting in in june of 93 and then we, what we did was we faxed out an invitation to all of the people. By 90, end of 93, 94, the industry quadrupled in size. You know, I mean, there was 10 companies and then all of a sudden there was 200 companies. And so Christie was a real conduit behind that. And so that was really uh, what got everyone to Arizona in 94. We sent out invitations to come and join us. And like 150 people came like, wow, we couldn't even fit everybody in the uh, location. And most people didn't have a company. They were just 10 people that wanted to be part of the industry. And so we let everybody join, even though you didn't have a company, you could just join if you're a hemp enthusiast. And so that was really uh, how that first meeting happened when, and it wasn't really the first, we invited everybody there. And then we all decided as a collective group to, uh, add more members and, you know, how are we going to do this? And what's the, you know, some people didn't like the name. Some people didn't like the lease. So all these things as a democratic association, we voted on everything, you know, okay, do you guys want this name? Do you want that name? There was people there taking notes, you know, that's really what led to that meeting, you know, which was our meeting. And then, like I said, they changed the name. Just for historical facts, you know, I mean, yeah, the name started there, but it was part of the True Hemp Industry Alliance meeting that everyone came to. And like I said, we, we kept the same format. We kept the same focus. We kept the same business model. And of course, and, you know, we wanted everyone's input. And then we said, well, I think the next step was, you know, where do we go from here? Everyone has different ideas. So there was some fragmentation, but uh, I think Chris Conrad, we elected him eventually, I think, as the first president of the new name. Christy Bowling didn't want to be the president. She pretty much organizer and uh, motivator behind it. And then I think in, by the next year, we really wanted to assimilate into American textiles. And so we hired a guy named Jim Langley, I think, who became the president of the HIA. And he was a suit and tie guy who was formerly the vice president of Lee Jeans. And he says, you know, if you guys want to get this into mainstream America, we need to be in New York City right there with the Institute of Fashion Design with Owen Circus. And we had an office in New York City for a little bit. That's kind of where 
we wanted to uh, introduce this to uh, the people of the textile world, not just hempsters, because, like I said, it was a lot bigger than all of us. Some people didn't agree with moving the HIA into New York City, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was the nucleus of uh, the textile industry. And plus, Jim had a lot of contacts being the former vice president of Lee Jeans. And so Owens, Professor Owen Circus and Jim, they were kind of holding our hands saying, if you guys really want to do this and go big, this is how you do it. And these guys were the experts. We weren't. And so, so HIA essentially started off as a, as a textile, more of a textile certification play, um, it sounds like. But what, what was the problem with the True Hemp Industry Alliance? Well, it wasn't just a textile. It was, at the same time, it was a co-op we were purchasing as a group. You know, we weren't just trying to do the label. That was the main focus is was, hey, how do we bring a half a million dollars worth of hemp fabric to America? I can't afford it. You can't afford it. Neither can he or she, but if we put all our money together, we can bring boatloads in containers. And that's kind of what we did with the Hawaiian Hemp guys, Ohio Hempery, Danny, I'm trying to think of his company from Arizona. So that was one of the main functions in the beginning was the co-op and buying the fabric and uh, distributing it to members. So if you were a member of, of the True Hemp Industry Alliance, you would you could get hemp canvas at $4 a yard or whatever, 450 And that way it would keep the cost down and uh, you could actually compete with other clothing. But the Chinese were getting pretty hip to what was going on because more and more people, once uh, we had the meeting in 94, you know, everyone decided, well, I'll be a distributor. I'll go to China and I'll buy the fabric and I'll sell it myself. And it kind of it fell apart a little bit there on that strategy. Well, once they found out, right, once the Chinese found out there was a market, they, they doubled or quadrupled their price, right? Exactly. <laughs> I won't get into details, but there were some things that actually triggered people buying out the back door, and we had orders in, and on and on. There was definitely um, some competition going on there. And before you knew it, uh, half the people were fabric distributors. And, you know, we were, you know, Hempstead, we were making hats and wallets and bags and we were doing seeds, but we were actually buying our seeds at the uh, animal feed places and selling bags of seed just as a novelty. <laughs> was it for food or just a novelty? For food, you know, it was mainly, it was pretty raw and rough. We would just sell one pound bags of seed. You know, we did all the Lollapalooza tours. We did a lot of concerts, a lot of vending. And it was just such a great catch to have a bowl of hemp seeds on your booth at a big festival. But it kind of sometimes... um backfired when the police showed up at the concert and threatened to arrest everybody in our booth for having marijuana seeds. <laughs> that happened a few times. And we were like, hey, we would read them the Hemp Riot Act. Like this is this is sterilized seed. Here's a controlled substance act. Here's, you know, the section that it says that these seeds are legal. But uh, yeah, it was a little dicey at times traveling with 50 pound bags of hemp seeds because you know any law enforcement was that's marijuana. There's no such thing as hemp. <laughs> And this was back before the DEA thought that claimed that hemp seed oil was a controlled substance. This is back before the HIA sued the DEA in you know in 2004. So this was a decade earlier. Once we got hit to the oil, I mean, we just we started pressing oil, and uh, I all of a sudden light bulb went on, and I'm like, I can sell 10,000 bottles of oil. Just put it in a bottle, put a label on it, and ship it out. Where selling clothing. We had to bring the fabric in from China. We had to cut it, dye it, shrink it, sew it, and then ship it out. And uh, 
Yeah, the hemp oil thing really kind of opened up the whole DEA thing. I mean, for us, we were in Southern California, and we noticed that uh, a lot of our big oil sales were around the military bases, Camp Pendleton, and we were shipping seeds to North Carolina and oil. We were shipping to like Germany, Japan, a lot of military bases. And I guess the the rumor was, and rumors spread real quick in the military, hey, if you fail your, your marijuana test, just go buy this hemp seed oil and show it to your commander and say, hey, I didn't smoke any pot. I just took this oil and it, oh. it made me fail the test, yeah, which was a lie. But that's a whole nother story. <laughs> yeah. Well, they gave them probable cause to get out of their potential discipline, potentially. Yeah, we had agents showing up at our warehouse in Costa Mesa, <laughs> undercover. It was just, uh, you know, just weird stuff was happening. But, you know, we, we just stuck by the law. We made sure, you know, we didn't have any cannabis around because back then, definitely uh, you'd get in a lot of trouble for that. And so for their sure. whole thing was that this was a front to legalize marijuana. You know, these, this hemp thing is just a, it's a joke. It's a front what they're trying to convince the American people to allow hemp. And then, and they're going to slip marijuana in and all the kids are going to have marijuana or something stupid like that. It was just ridiculous. Same fear tactics. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it, it worked. I mean, in 1994, I was on the Kentucky governor's hemp task force and they had some agents there that were testifying before the governor that basically what I just said, saying, hey, you know, this is a disguise and uh, they're going to want to plant their hemp and they'll put their marijuana in the middle of the field and we'll never be able to tell the difference. Uh, it was like, oh, come on, guys, that's not going to happen. But uh, stuff like that was popping up all the time. Dude, I had the same thing in Iowa. I think it was Iowa or Kansas in 2016. The attorney general, right after I testified, testified that exactly that. We would hide a marijuana plant in the middle of a hemp field until we explained that once that marijuana plant is seeded, right, then it decreases production of cannabinoids. So they, she didn't even know the agronomy of the situation. So interesting uh, fear tactic that's been used for decades. Yeah, I mean, just the same thing when uh, I was involved with the co-hip people in Colorado in 94, 95. And you know, Lord Casey was it, uh, the senator. And, you know, I mean, he, he took so much flack from a lot of the conservatives in Colorado. Um, I wouldn't just even conservatives, just in general, they thought this was, again, just the whole hippie movement to uh, disguise the hemp so they could get marijuana. And, uh, you know, as you know, there was many bills that were presented in Colorado and Kentucky that every time they'd be presented, you know, the narcotics agents would show up and testify and, you know, their words is, is more important than anyone else's word, I guess. So uh, they'd always believe them. Well, it's 2020 and hemp is legal. Let's move on. Great uh, recap on kind of how everything got going in the 90s. And let's catch up to what you're doing now with Farm Tiva and hemp seed breeding and cultivating in California and so forth. Yeah, you know, Farm Tiva is kind of what's born out of just the legalization here with uh, growing industrial hemp, we've had seeds and we've dealt with many different varieties, mainly fibers and, and, and grain varieties over the years. And so we decided, hey, California needs some really good seed. And uh, a lot of the seeds related, as you know, a lot of it's been crossbred. CBD is an American invention. And that's what I call it. You know, we just look at cultivars that we think uh, are productive and uh we hybrid and we do selective breeding in Vista, 
We're not just in the CBD. We also do a lot of grain and fiber seeds. We have a few grain projects and a couple fiber projects that have been scaled down. But we're also getting into the leaf juicing and just really trying to see what's on the horizon because uh, I think CBD is just the scratch of the surface. And uh, there's a lot of other, I'll call them commodities that can come off the plant, whether it's the juice or the, the CBD, the CBG, CBDV. There's so many different uh, molecules, as you know. And we're going to slowly see, I think, you know, the industry open up in different sectors. You know, we're excited about the protein, the seed protein with um, some of these big giant IPOs on Wall Street, which is vegetable-based protein is one of the fastest growing categories in agriculture. And uh, so we're going to see a lot more companies producing that. And hemp seed would be a perfect shoe-in to create uh, vegetable-based protein. But uh, our main focus is breeding seed and and uh, also uh, different varieties, like I said, for the fiber and the grains, and also for the leafing. We've got some leafing varieties that we think will do real well, 60-day crop, and, you know, you've got uh, a product. How's the regulatory environment these days in California in regards to hemp? They just passed the new law. Anyone that's going to grow hemp has to get an FBI fingerprint background check, uh, any officers in the company or managers, which kind of, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, uh, growers, they don't do a FBI background check and uh, that kind of just more paperwork. And now they're talking about increasing the fees from $900 to maybe $3,000, maybe 4000 However, there's California's a little different than the other states. Like in Colorado, you guys have one ag commissioner. We've got, I think, 51. So every county has their own ag commissioner. So if you're going to grow hemp in a county, you have to go through the paper process in each county. And some of the counties are a little more stricter than others. And so we're just seeing just the delay in getting stuff approved. And uh, definitely there's just not enough workers in the ag office to process the hemp. However, like I said, in some counties, they're really happy to see us. In some counties, they're kind of frowning on it because it's too much work for them and they're not getting paid for it. The problem is they're going to change overnight. I mean, counties can change their, their minds, you know, essentially with one vote, right? And then all of a sudden those cannabis companies are now not approved, right? They're not legal to be in that area. So it's very, it's a very difficult environment to move forward with from my view. Yeah, we're seeing in some cannabis counties and Humboldt and other areas, they're putting a moratorium on hemp. Cannabis is a huge revenue generator, huge tax base. So when you've got these people telling the ag commissioner, if you let people grow hemp, you'll destroy our entire industry here, and you're making millions of dollars off of it, so they think twice. And now you're getting uh, the wine industries coming to the ag commissioners and complaining that the terpenes and the smell of hemp or cannabis can get into the grape. I don't know if that's been proven scientifically possible, but uh, you saw in St. Louis Obispo, that county, they, they put a moratorium, and they're supposed to vote tomorrow night on whether to allow hemp in San Luis Obispo. But uh, yeah, there's definitely some pushback. I think maybe about, uh, there's about 30 counties that you can't grow in. It might make the wine taste better, actually. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Cannabis-infused wine goes back to the uh, Bible days, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> you can get and Chris Bennett on here, and he can confirm that. Yeah, we've had some CBD-infused wine, I think, from a couple places. And yeah, it was, uh, was less religious than I expected, for sure. And not tasting very good either, generally. No, I mean, it was like, yeah, it was not good. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I think cannabinoids and alcohol, the ATF has some issue on that. Uh, I know whether they're over allowed or not, but uh, I know there's been some you problems. You're people... healthy while you're, getting, while you're getting drunk, for sure. You don't want to put good stuff in yeah. your system. The Red Bull is allowed. Oh, monster. Sure. Is there anything else you'd like to add from the Farm Tiva side before we wrap this up? That's about it. You know, just that uh, that we're just glad that we're here and we're really uh, hoping that this industry takes off. It's been, like I said, a little hiccup in <laughs> with this virus and then plus the industry getting saturated with a lot of product. We're here to educate people. I do a lot of consulting and, you know, honesty is the best policy. There's a lot of shysters out there giving out information on how to grow hemp and profit margins. And it's just it's causing problems, but hopefully we meet the right people and we can educate so many of them. And, and that's kind of our goal. You mean you're not like telling people they're going to be making fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars an acre by growing hemp? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of uh yeah, you're still seeing people that do that or guarantee your seeds will below THC or we're going to guarantee we're going to buy your crop back. I mean, uh, and, but then there's some little fine lines in the contract you have to read. So hopefully uh, this year should be better than last year. Maybe we'll see. But the prices, as you know, have all bottomed out. Hopefully the FDA will allow edible consumable CBD here in the very, very near future because that will open the Hoover Dam of CBD. And uh, until that happens, there's going to be definitely a slowdown in the industry. For sure. Yeah, it's funny. Everyone was eating, yeah. eating, has been eating CBD recently since 2015, right? Since the new farm bill. But now all of a sudden that it's a potential danger and we did not, even it's not lawful in some places. So it's just some states have gone ahead and said, yeah, CBD is a good food, like Virginia and Colorado, Oregon. The FDA needs to follow suit for sure. Yeah, and it's their opinion, and I, I think definitely logic will dictate this thing. And uh, and I always see you're going to look at the politics, and I think Mitch McConnell is going to have to do something in Kentucky because he's got a lot of upset farmers. And these guys aren't just your you know run-of-the-mill hippie hemp farmers. These are tobacco farmers and corn farmers. They're kind of the core constituents. And uh, when the FDA put the kibosh on Edible hemp, it just it bankrupted how many companies in Kentucky? So yeah. um, he's got some work to do, I would think. Well, I think that there's promise with that. We had Jonathan Miller on our virtual conference, was it last week, Rick? And and Jonathan had j just had a, a good conversation with McConnell the week before, and he felt pretty optimistic about that at some point here in the near future. Yeah, if anyone knows, Jonathan knows. <laughs> He's in Kentucky. That's kind of the core of the industry, I'd say, in terms of uh, the political football and the and the power with the federal government and what they've been able to do there. And just, uh, yeah, hopefully. Uh, and you guys have a great governor where you guys are at. He yeah, is pro-hemp, which is great. Talks about it, goes to your events. And I just want to thank both of you guys for all you guys do and just having these trade shows. I mean, I when I went to your first trade show, it was like this is this was the dream. Oh, here, 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 here is here's everybody, you know. And it wasn't just like a action sports show or a clothing show. It was the hemp show, man. It was like this is it. Okay, we're here. We're trying. We we've got a. We were getting ready to have a quite the show end of March, and then all of a sudden we're all hit with this same thing with the coronavirus, and we have to move yeah. online a little while, but. 
we've got it rescheduled for August and hopefully we'll be able to get back to having some sort of gatherings. We're working on kind of the, the remodeled layout with social distancing and stuff. And we're talking with the governor's office, but we'll see. We'll make the kind of the final call in June if we're going to be able to pull that off or if they're going to just say no gatherings of more than 50 people for the rest of 2020. And if that's the case, then, well, I guess we'll just have to wait till 2021. Yeah, no concerts, no no sports, no hemp events. <laughs> no nothing except for podcasts. Yeah, hey, this is great. I, I really appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, thank thank you. Well, we really appreciate having you on as well, and, and thanks for all your commitment and advocacy to this plant over the course of the last 30 years. You're one of the good guys that's still out there beating the same drum. Keep, keep on keeping on, you know. You've got to keep doing it. It's uh, living, breathing it since uh, 90, so uh haven't spent a day not doing hemp. So uh, I guess I'll keep going till the day I die. Okay, buddy. We appreciate it for sure. So let's, uh, four questions we ask everyone. So it's uh, the first, the first question, Chris, is what are you most thankful for in the industry today? Most thankful for it being legal. <laughs> most thankful that we can grow it here in California, Colorado. I mean, literally, I am thankful that we can grow hemp. I mean, it's that, that was the whole foundation, this whole movement. Like, when can we grow it? As you know, I try to grow it in 94 with the USDA and we grew it, but uh, we had a little problem near the end, but uh, we thought it'd be a couple of years, but we're here now. So that, that's what I'm really thankful for. Right on. Next, what do you see as the largest opportunity and or challenge for the hemp industry today? I think the, the, the biggest opportunity is gonna be in the flavoring, the juicing, the food. It's just, uh, it's massive. I think once the FDA changes their tune, you can't stop it. It's going to be, you know, a main commodity here in America and uh, throughout the world. What was the end of the question? What do you see as the biggest challenge that the industry faces currently? Oh, the FDA. The FDA's opinion on edible hemp. I mean, we can sit here and argue the legal opinion according to the Farm Bill of 2018 and what it says, what's whole plant, what's not. So, again, yeah, FDA. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We had some of that hemp juice because that, when we were in Ireland in, a couple of years ago, that was pretty good. It was, that definitely gave me a lot of energy, just raw hemp juice from the, from the leaves. was really, really good. So, speaking of yeah, which, what's your favorite hemp product? What's my favorite hemp product? Jeez. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> I love the food. I think dehulled seeds are just like the best source of energy, food, nutrition from that standpoint. You know, I have them every day in my smoothie or my salad or my soy ice cream. And yeah, I'd say that uh, is the uh, one thing I'm thankful for. Such a great source of food. Have you had the hemp ice cream? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> And Aguadas is one of the first guys I met in Colorado in 1993, man. <laughs> but uh, he, he educated me. He's an incredible guy. Das yep. is awesome. Yeah. We all love Das. And what are your final thoughts here on Let's Talk Hemp? My final thoughts are the more that we all come together as an industry group and, and lobby the FDA and the government to allow hemp to be like any other agricultural commodity, we need to take the stigma out of it, whether the license to grow, to pay to grow it. You know, if you're going to tax the hemp people to grow it, 
you need to tax the corn guys, the cotton guys. I mean, it's not fair. It just puts regulation on us. And I think that's where we really need to kind of hammer this out and get rid of these applications that cost money and uh, cost time. And it basically is a slippery slope because each year the fees go up and the money goes up to grow hemp. And uh, that's something that needs to be taken care of sooner than later. Because before you know it, and you know, who knows, it might be 10,000 bucks just to get a hip license someday. It's not right. going down, it's going up. And why don't they do that to other agricultural crops? So that that's kind of my answer to that. Well, and you know, those small farmers have extra 10 grand laying around all the time. Those guys are loaded. Oh yeah, in the back pocket. <laughs> So let's hey, talk. Thanks, Hemp. We can do that. I've been doing that my whole life, and so I appreciate again you guys having me on. Absolutely, brother. Take care. We'll see each other sometime soon. You got it, Morris. And appreciate you. Take care, guys. We'll see you. Join the NOCO Hemp Expo crew June 16th through 19th for the Experience Hemp Summer Solstice event, our second virtual conference and trade show. Exhibitor and sponsor registration is now open and attendees get in for free. Brought to you by Colorado Hemp Company and Let's Talk Hemp Media. More information at nocohempexpo.com. And we're back, wrapping it up there with Chris Boucher of Farm Tiva. Always good to talk to Chris. Definitely one of the one of the coolest pioneers that we've got still functioning today in the hemp industry functioning man he's still rocking it so he uh, still has great stories to share and i mean we have a couple more stories just from that interview we can share so more episodes with chris i'm sure are on the horizon chris has got good perspective on how things have evolved from the early 90s up until really today we didn't get into too much of the current situation with him but he's been there the whole way and hats off to chris for for being a great leader absolutely standing on Standing on the shoulders of Chris and the group that started way back in 92, 94, and kept pushing until today. Well, speaking of today, what's going on with HIA today? There's been some changes over the course of the last few years and the last couple of months. So what's the update with the Hemp Industries Association? Yes. So all things good. We are taking a look. We have a new board. So we are have a couple of extra board seats. We are actively seeking an executive director which will be our second executive director in the past, I guess, three years. And they're really working on our state chapter program and, and helping reform and rebrand the HIA. I mean, we've spent 25 years as a advocacy group working with a plant that some have considered illegal, right? We finally were able to make people realize and the government realized it wasn't, it's not illegal. And now all the industries that have been around paper manufacturing, clothing manufacturing, textiles, plastics, cannabinoids, right? Health and wellness, food all are being impacted by this plant because this plant can do so many things. So HIA really is in a position to go from an advocacy organization to more of a, a large trade association with really tentacles in almost every industry because this plant is that effective. So we have some great partnerships and coming down the pike, and we have some good announcements coming for what we have as far as state chapter programs, which we're revamping and really just taking the HIA and putting a new brand on it and, and getting after some stuff. So we've done a lot. We created the Hemp Industry Foundation, which you'll hear about, which is our 501c3 in the last few months. So we are excited to move forward, and that's positive. That's good to hear. And as I understand, Hemp History Week, which was really more guided under the Bronner umbrella is, and HIA, is now really 
under HIA and is getting rebranded as Hemp Week. Do you have any updates on what's going on for Hemp Week? Yep. So Hemp History Week has been an HIA project, like you said, funded with Bronner and other organizations, Manitoba Harvest and such in the past. And last year was our 10th anniversary, and we were together in San Diego for that. We had the return of the plant was the theme. And this year, we have Hemp History Week coming up. This first week of June is now going to be Hemp Week. So this will come out right about uh, the week before Hemp Week comes out. So it will be online, mostly digital. Obviously, COVID interrupted the large retail program we had last year. We had, I think we reached over 300,000 customers last year uh, with our retail project. But this year, obviously, that's on hold. We are transforming it from Hemp History Week to Hemp Week, really, again, with the reforming of the HIA in general, focusing on the future. We've obviously done a lot of work in the past and to get us here, but we're really focusing on, on the future and how we can best expand the awareness of hemp, the education of hemp, and really the, the use and sale of hemp at the end of the day. If more people use this product, they'd realize the benefits and we'd sell a lot more. So that's really the focus, and that's what we're doing this year. We're making it virtual. We're doing a lot more engagement, not really conference kind of style, not like the solstice, which we can talk about here in a bit, but uh, we're making it all digital, all online, really with the engagement and the consumer drive and the education drive that we've had in the past. So same kind of format, but just online. Well, that's great. Hemp History Week has been one of my favorite things the last several years, and I've enjoyed working with Nancy Metcalf and Lauren Stansberry and Lauren Burlacamp and all the folks that were really integral up until this point in time. I know Ryan has taken over now and she was definitely involved last year and has done a great job from a marketing and online and advertising side of things. So I'm I'm excited to see the transition. I wish the circumstances were a little bit different for society right now and retail in general, because hemp is getting into so many more retail accounts now not just the food side, but with the supplement CBD side. And it's sad that the retail side of things is just where it is right now because of the whole COVID thing. But next year, we'll be back. Absolutely. And I think I feel bad because Ryan is, you're absolutely right. Ryan has been part of Hemp History Week for years on both sides, on the Manitoba side and on the HIA side. And she's such, this is such a great program and she's done such a wonderful job building it out. And we were so excited for what was going to happen this year with the transition. And I know she was personally excited as well as professionally excited. So um, sad to see it go for a lot of reasons. And, but um, like you said, we're going to bring it back bigger and better next year. And um, we have a lot of good assets on our side that we can build from. So that's always a good place to start, my friend. Sure. Well, we'll continue to support it every single year. And hopefully in another five years, hemp will be one of the biggest food categories and health and supplement categories in every store across America. That would be good for health. Yes, it would be. Speaking of um, building on foundations, what's uh, good uh, events coming up here June 16th through the 19th? Tell us about the summer solstice. Yes. So we are moving on to our second virtual event, another conference and trade show. We did the Earth Week event. And so those of you that came out and experienced that. We had a quite a good turnout, a lot of registrants, and we are expecting significantly more. We had like 20, I think 23 exhibitors at the last one. We only had a couple of weeks to put that together once we got the platform figured out. And now that we've got that under our belt and more time, we're hopefully going to have 
upwards of 100 plus exhibitors in the virtual expo halls. We're going to go from one hall to three halls. And we're going to go from one networking room to three networking rooms, which will include a business networking room, uh, a diversity room that's going to be like a collaboration lounge. And then we're also going to have a job fair lounge or room. So we'll have a, a staffing agency and the opportunity for companies looking for talent and talent looking for companies to, to get together. And we're also going to have three days worth of live webcasts, which will have two super sessions a day on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And they're going to be 90-minute sessions with anywhere from, I think, six to 10 people. And me and you will be hosting that again and bringing in a variety of people, talking about some different subject matter than the last time, all relevant to what's going on in the hemp industry today. And we will have an expanded Let's Talk Hemp library and archive that will include virtually all of the past NOCO sessions that we have recorded, as well as other content that's pre-recorded and submitted specifically for the library. And we're going to have a music room. Hopefully, we're going to have some live Zoom musicians doing music, as well as we'll have some YouTube playlists that will be inspiring for the hemp crowd. What else do we got going on? Oh, we're going to have a digital magazine too. So if folks are interested in advertising their brands or even contributing an article for our new digital magazine, we are going to put that together and that will be available during the summer solstice week. And we'll get inserted into everybody's digital briefcase that registers for the event. And uh, all that information will be at nocohempexpo.com. We've got pretty much all of it figured out and press release will have gone out by the time this episode airs. And yeah, we're looking forward to it. I love that. This is how powerful this plant is that we are in the middle of a COVID crisis. We'll just call it what it is. And we are still having a job fair. People are still looking for jobs and that's absolutely true. I mean, there are still hemp companies hiring across the country, across the world, but absolutely fantastic that we still have companies hiring in, in, in a downturn like this because of hemp. So it's going to be exciting. Uh, the first Earth Week conference was absolutely amazing, and we had some good speakers there. This one's going to be broader, has a bigger audience, and a lot more specialized uh, conversations. So really looking forward to it. Yeah, we will have figured out the platform more. I think that we did a pretty good job overall our first time out and trying to figure out the, the live webcast. But it, overall, I think it generally works better than Zoom and some of these other webinar platforms. I was pretty surprised at the functionality of it. I mean, for sure, it was definitely better than Zoom. And I think it was by far the best virtual conference that I've ever hosted with you, for sure. Yeah. Didn't you just do something for China? Yeah, I just presented a video for China. Interesting, the first time I filmed it, I filmed behind me, it's self-filmed, of course, because we're in COVID, but I filmed behind me were flags that I got, prayer flags that I got from uh, when we were in Nepal, from Tibet. And I had totally forgotten that, you, that having Tibetan prayer flags behind you for an announcement that goes to the whole country of China is probably the worst idea ever. So I, I redid it, and uh, they sent it up and transcribed it and everything. And it, I guess it had 100,000 views yesterday or last week when it went up. So that's wild. Nice. Which is like point zero 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 one percent of China, but that's the percent. Sure. Every percent <laughs> counts. The Chinese really don't care for the Nepalese people, do they? 
or at least the government. No, I think it's more. I think it's more. You know, obviously I'm not Chinese, but I think it's more that they there's the history with the Tibetan people, right? It's Tibet, the Tibetan prayer flags, and so China and Tibet got into it. I think in the 60s, free Tibet, the Dalai Lama, right? The Buddhist monks. I mean, that's all. That's Tibet. He's Tibetan heritage and the Buddhist monk. So that's my understanding. But I think. I don't think they ever went to war with Nepal. Nepal's kind of insulated, man. It's in that, like, you know, I mean, we, you know how hard it is to get there. It'd sure. be, like, hard to get in and overtake. I mean, they didn't have a Hannibal with elephants, I think, in Asia at the time. <laughs> you know, couldn't pull a Swiss, a Swiss uh, you know, mountain overtake, but. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode. Again, it was great to have Chris Boucher on and look forward to moving on down the road with. Well, this is our fifth episode. We got six more after this to wrap up season three. We're not going to roll three years in a row, man. That's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, we're just getting started. What else are we going to do? Plenty coming down the pike, buddy. Plenty coming down the pike. All right, man. Well, take care. Enjoy yourself in Steamboat Springs. All right, buddy. We'll talk soon. All right. See ya. Cheers. best way you can support the show is to share this with your family, friends, and colleagues. Don't miss the opportunity to learn more about this podcast at letstalkhemp.com. And if you enjoyed the show, feel free to subscribe and leave us an iTunes review. Thanks for listening. See ya. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why is an endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.